so at the beginning of this year, we had dozens of people who set out to read the Bible through this year, who'd never read the Bible through, and they took a challenge to read from Genesis to Revelation all in the same year. And what we're hearing from so many of them is that they hate it. Um, to be honest with you, you're saying, why is that? Here's what I'm finding out. There's a lot of people who've been in the church their entire life or a big portion of their life, but they've never really read anything except the stories of Jesus. And you get into some of the Old Testament stuff, and it's dark. I mean, there are some dark stories and some dark moments in the spiritual history of Israel and the people of God. And I've, I've heard some people say, man, I, like, I'm bothered. I'm not enjoying reading this. And I've reminded everyone the truth of the Bible, one, really helps us understand that it's reliable history. I mean, when you talk about how can you know that the Bible is true, one of the ways you know that the Bible is true is because it doesn't cover up the mess. If you were writing a spiritual book to focus on the spiritual lives of spiritual heroes and you were making it all up, you would never make them look bad. You would never reveal their weaknesses, but our Bible does. Secondly, the darkness of the Old Testament just makes Jesus shine that much brighter. And for those of you who are in the Bible reading plan, today's our last day for a while in the Old Testament. Tomorrow we start Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus. So take a deep breath because it gets better. But today... Unfortunately, we're going to be in a very dark chapter of spiritual history. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. It'll be on the screen behind me. Grab your sermon notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. If you're streaming, you can follow along on those notes right on your computer. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're introduced to David, David who killed Goliath, David who was the king of Israel, David who wrote nearly a 100 psalms and taught the people of Israel how to worship we're introduced to an episode today in his family that I'll be honest with you is one of the most disturbing chapters in all the Bible. But what we can learn from it, what we can learn about how not to parent and how not to live, it's pretty powerful as we enter week three of this Family Strong series. So kind of get ready. It's not pretty, but it's history. Here we go. Second Samuel chapter 13 says this, in the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, the son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, so that was his uncle. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning, won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. It would have been his half-sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Prepare, let her prepare the food in my sight so I might watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I might eat it from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat it. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I might eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? 
You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and he said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after. She was wearing an ornate robe for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head. If you've ever seen a Catholic friend on Ash Wednesday, this is what that looked like. She marked her head with ash. She didn't walk around with a pile of ashes on her head. Um, And she went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you stayed all the way through that story, thank you. Because there's good reason for you halfway through that to think, I knew Christians were crazy and to get up and leave. So I'm glad that you stayed, but this is an ugly ugly chapter of history in the nation of Israel. And there's nothing that can be said to excuse what happened, but I've got to explain just a little bit of culture to you to at least wrap your head around what is going on here that seems so backwards to us today. As we skim the surface of the cultural backdrop, here's what you need to understand about the kings of Israel. They and their families were supposed to be different, but often they weren't. The kings of Israel were commanded to not have multiple wives in Deuteronomy 17, 17. Although every king of every kingdom 3,000 years ago would have multiple wives, multiple kids, large harems to extend their royal family, God said Israel's not supposed to do that. Have one wife, love your wife, have kids, trust me to take care of you. But the kings of Israel rarely did this, and probably the two guys who were the worst were David and his son Solomon. They just kept marrying wives. They kept having children. Not every time they did it did God come against them and say, you can't do this. But on the front end, he said, don't do it. And if it was addressed... Their multiple marriages were only condemned and never condoned. I hear people who've read through the Old Testament say, how does God deal with all these guys who had all these wives? And I said, well, God doesn't address everyone, but when he addresses it, he only condemns it. He never condones it in scripture, but the kings of Israel did it. And you say, why would the kings of Israel do that if God told them not to? Because everyone was doing it. Because it was very culturally normal. But here's what we need to understand. Doing what was normal for their culture instead of what was right with God always had devastating consequences for Israel and for us. This is not the point of this message, but it is a pretty powerful point in this message. Just because culture is okay with things doesn't mean they're okay. You can, as a Christian today, live in a way that's okay with culture, but not okay in the sight of God. And we have to figure out who our audience is and who our authority is. So David, Solomon, their sons, the kings of Israel, they did what was right with culture instead of what was right with God, and they ended up in a major, major problem. Now, you say, Christian, okay, this is weird. Why did it happen? Let me give you, again, the explanation, not the excuse for it. Why did the kings of Israel have multiple children with multiple women? Why did their sons marry their half-sisters who rarely they ever met until they were fully grown? So they didn't grow up together. They were hardly related. But why would kings do this? Kings did this so that their son, who would be the next king, would never have a father-in-law. 
Plain and simple, that was it. They wanted to make sure there was never a man who could claim the throne through his daughter so a king would have a son and then he'd have a daughter with a different woman. These two would never meet and he would let them get married so that her dad couldn't take the throne from his son. Culturally, that's why they did it. Doesn't make it right, but that is the explanation of what's happening here in this story. It's a story about protecting the throne, but it's more than that. For us today, this story becomes a story about protecting our children. Today's a parenting story. Today is a family story. Today is a relationship story. See, we're going to learn two truths from today's message that are so powerful that I believe they can, they can literally transform the future of your family. But before we transform the future of a family, we've got to look in the past a little bit. Let me ask you a question about your family. Is your family a family that when it deals with conflicts... They shove it and they hide it deep down, never comes up, never addressed? Or is your family a family that when there's conflict allows it to surface so that it can be healed? Let me say it again, because we've all grown up in one of two of those situations. Do you live in a family that when conflict comes, we shove it and we hide it, and it's all just deep down, just being processed? Or do we live in a family where we allow conflict to surface so that we can heal it? Today's message is about that reality in the life of David and his family, and whether you're a parent with kids, whether you're married with a spouse, whether you're a school teacher with a class, whether you're a coach with a team, whether you're a boss with employees, whether you're a coworker with other coworkers in the halls, today is how we deal with conflict and confrontation in a way that is strong spiritually from this terrible story in the life of David. So what can we learn? A couple things. First, we're going to learn today from the life of David that what we don't confront, we give our consent to. The things we don't confront, we end up giving our consent to. David's son had just raped David's daughter. And the narrator tells us David was furious, but he didn't do anything. We don't read that David went to his son Amnon and said, son, you can't do that. We don't read that David even went to his daughter Tamar, put his arm around her and said, are you okay? I will make this right. David was furious, but he shoved it. He hit it. He figured out things would just kind of play out. And that gives us a really, really dangerous relationship. And if your parents parenting quality, it's dangerous for a parent to be both spiritually aware and spiritually absent. It's really dangerous for a parent to know when your kids are going down the wrong road, but not do anything about it. As a matter of fact, according to Scripture, Scripture said it would be better for you to be unaware and uninvolved than for you to be aware but absent because when you know what's going on and you refuse to do anything about it, whether you're a parent of a child, whether you're an employer of an employee, when you know something's going wrong and you don't confront it, you're giving consent to it. Listen to what God told the Israelites in Numbers chapter 30 about parents stepping in when confrontation is needed. God said, when a young woman still living in her father's household makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge and her father hears about her vow or pledge but doesn't say anything to her, then all of her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, 
None of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. If a parent knows their kids are headed in the wrong direction and they don't do anything about it, that kid is now responsible to the Lord because the parent has consented to that direction. But if the kids are headed in the wrong direction and a parent steps in, God releases the kids from the responsibility of the wrong direction because he trusts the parents to take responsibility. So let me ask you again, your family, does your family stuff and hide conflict or do they allow it to surface so that it can be healed. What do we do with the bad news stories of our day as parents? David did nothing. He was angry. But his emotion never turned into action. It remained unspoken anger. It remained unspoken disappointment. And David's inaction led to something awful. And we find that a parent's inaction can actually create wrong actions. Did you know that? When a parent knows of something but they refuse to engage, it usually leads to worse actions. When you know your kids are looking at things on social media that they shouldn't be but you don't get engaged, they're going to look at worse. When you know your kid's playlist doesn't honor God but you don't step in, it's eventually their language is not going to honor God. When you know your son or daughter is dating someone who's going to pull them down spiritually and you continue to let that go, the inaction creates wrong action big time for David's family. Remember the first time I pulled into Jerusalem and as we kind of rode around Jerusalem and we rode by the Kidron Valley, I looked over in the Kidron Valley and I literally asked my guy, do you remember the board game Sorry and the little pieces you played Sorry with? I literally asked my guy, I was like, what's with the Sorry piece, uh, you know, over there? And he's like, you know, what's a Sorry piece? He was Jewish. He's like, okay, never mind. That little, that little thing there. And he said, oh, that's Absalom's uh, monument. I said, Absalom? Like David's son, Absalom? And he said, well, they call it Absalom's monument. It's not really Absalom's monument. But you know the, the monument in the Bible. I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, what did Absalom do? Well, Absalom's sister got raped. Remember that? If you read the rest of the story, you know what Absalom did? He killed Amnon. And a lot of us hear that and think, good. He should have killed Amnon. As a matter of fact, after he killed Amnon, one of David's advisors told him, Absalom killed your son. And he basically said, but we were all waiting on that because, of course, we all know he raped his sister. And David was like, yeah, makes sense. Absalom, because his dad had no spine, took matters into his own hands. And David's inaction created some wrong actions in Absalom. We're told then that he was kind of kicked out of the kingdom. So he would go and he would stand in the Kidron Valley. Just on the left of this is the Garden of Gethsemane, as you're thinking through the lens of Jesus. To the right in the upper corner, you can see the wall of Jerusalem. It said Absalom positioned himself outside the main gate of Jerusalem. And any time a traveler would come from anywhere in Israel to go see the king, Absalom would stop him and say, listen, we have a king that doesn't deal in conflict. We, as a, we have a king that can't make decisions. We have a king that won't act when it's hard. So if you need something done, come to me. I'll help you. But our king is a coward. Our king is spiritually impotent. And Absalom knew that he would never be remembered as a king of Israel because of what he'd done. So he said, I'll build my own monument. And the whole world will know I only acted because my dad wouldn't. The whole world will know I had to take matters into my own hands. There's some families here today whose kids are building in their own hearts right now monuments to wrong actions because of your inaction. And they just want you to do something one way or another to help them or to punish them, but to be a parent, take responsibility. David didn't do that. You say, why? Because confrontation's hard. You ever have to go into work and have a tough meeting on Monday and struggle to sleep Sunday because of it? 
Maybe struggle to sleep Saturday because of it. Maybe have butterflies in your stomach for a week because of it. Confrontation is not easy. It's not fun. But spiritual confrontation and parenting usually results in two things. And if you're not a parent, cross out the word parenting and just write relationships. Confrontation and relationships almost always results in two things. Number one, it results in temporary hell. I mean, almost always. The first time you talk to your kids, the first time I talk to mine, the first time we talk to our spouse about something, very rarely do we confront someone and they immediately say, you're right, I'm sorry. It doesn't usually happen that way. Usually it leads to temporary hell, kind of just chaos immediately. But if it's done right and it's done in a heart of love and it's done long enough, spiritual confrontation eventually results in long-term healing. Like it might take a while, but if you can get to the bottom of the matter, if you can get to the heart of the matter, you can see some long-term healing. You know, medical experts tell us one of the worst wounds to have is a burn wound. Not like sunburn, but like burned in a house fire. Because every layer of your skin burns at a different level, and the layers deeper in your arm burn deeper than the layers on top. And what happens if you ever experience a burn wound is that literally the skin on top heals first. It heals top down. So every day when new skin forms, you have to scrape off the new skin on every top layer until the bottom one heals first. Every day for weeks, you have to scrape off the new skin until you see healing in the bottom one. And once the bottom one heals, then you start letting the next one heal and on and on and on. What we like to do in culture like if we can just kind of smooth things over, if the top wound heals, if we can still live in the, in the house with each other, we don't get to the bottom of confrontation. Like if we can still sleep in the same bed, we don't get to the bottom of confrontation. Like if our kids are just going to like stay on the honor roll and graduate, we don't get to the bottom of the matter. Like if our employee keeps making us money, we don't get to the bottom of the matter. But what happens in a burn wound when you let the top heal without the bottom healing, eventually the bottom gets infected. You get gangrene, you get staph infection, and usually you'll end up losing a limb. And that's what happens relationally. We kind of smooth over the wound on the outside. We never get to the heart of the matter. And eventually the decay is way worse than if we would have the first time stuck with spiritual confrontation. Proverbs 27, 6 says it this way, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Now for some of us, that sounds kind of ironic Think, wait a minute, friends don't wound you. Sure they do. But wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend hurt. Wounds from a friend bruise. Wounds from a friend bleed. But wounds from a friend eventually bring healing like a doctor who will hurt you to do surgery to remove something that will hurt you worse. Wounds from a, a, a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. Just smooth over the top layer, go back to work, ignore stuff, shove it, hide it, get over it. We find out from David that doesn't always work. So confrontation hurts. Confrontation usually results in a temporary hell. Try to take your teenager's phone for a week and see how that works out for you. Usually starts in a temporary hell, but confrontation that brings healing is always worth both of those things. So what we don't confront, we give our consent to. Secondly, we learn from David, specifically for those of us who want to be spiritual leaders and those of us who are parents, our kids will repeat in their lives what we don't repair in our own. Our kids are going to repeat in our lives what we don't repair in our own. 
Those of you who say, man, I'm just praying my kid will follow Jesus and really go well through the summer, but we're out having a good time at the Garth Brooks concert last night. Listen, it's going to be hard. And yes, we're Facebook friends. So like you friended me, so you got to be aware of what you put on Facebook before you're out partying as adults. It's like, you know, I want my kid to walk with Jesus, but here I am at the Sprint Center having a good time. It's like, your kids are going to repeat what you don't repair. Like, like we have to know that. Because this awful story that we just read, this is David's story before it was his children's story. The story about some spoiled brat king who believed he could sexually have anyone he wanted, that's David's story, not Amnon's. That was David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, taking a walk on the roof of his house, seeing a neighbor who was married to a general in his army who he, who he wanted to be with, and he brought her over and he slept with her and then sent her home. His son Amnon knew that. He saw that Amnon learned from his dad that royalty got whatever they wanted sexually. That was David's story. Killing a guy who was kind of in the way, that wasn't Absalom's story, that was David's story. When Uriah Bathsheba's husband finally came home and David couldn't figure out how to get rid of the problem, he just killed him. His son Absalom was alive and would have witnessed those meetings that were taking place. Absalom learned from his dad, when you want to get rid of a problem, you don't heal it, you kill it. This was David's story. It's why a lot of scholars trying to be an apologist for David in 2 Samuel 13 say that David wouldn't parent strongly spiritually because he thought it would be hypocritical. How do you tell your son you can't sexually abuse someone when he's watched you do that? How do you tell your son you don't just kill a problem when you can heal a problem when he's watched you do that? Scholars say David, reflecting on his own life, just kind of stepped back and thought, I can't say anything about this. They learned it from me. And many of you today, and myself included, we're going to look at our kids. We're going to look at the next generation that we're leading. We're going to see them heading in the wrong direction that needs confrontation, not consent. And we're going to think, you know what? When I was their age, I did the same thing. So just leave them alone. And we might think something like this. I turned out okay. Listen, by the grace of God, we may have turned out okay. But God has now given our kids us. When we were kids, we wish we would have had someone like us to help us. And we say, you know, I I was just like them. See, we just let them go because we don't want to feel hypocritical. Or maybe it's not like they're like us when they're teenagers, but they're like me now. We see our kids and we want better for them than we're willing right now to have for ourselves. We want our kids to read our Bibles, but we never read our Bibles. We want our kids to pray, but we never pray. We want our kids to say no to sin, but we really don't want to say no to sin. So we think, you know, I don't want to parent too hard because eventually they're going to come back and say, well, mom and dad, why don't you do what you're telling me to do? So we just kind of let it go. But not everyone feels that way. I understand the heart of hypocrisy. My son as a 15-year-old loves Jesus way more at 15 than I did. And sometimes I look at him and when he's moving off in the wrong direction, I think, man, you know, I really need to tell him don't do that. But I feel like I'm always on him. And, you know, I turned out okay. And God says, no, 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 your responsibility is to parent. Just parent and trust me. So the question is, how do we repair our past so that it's not our child's future? Like, how do we repair what we've done wrong so that our kids don't repeat it and it becomes what they do wrong? Well, a couple things that I think I can share with you today. Number one, you've got to repent of it. Repentance means admitting before God that it was wrong. Like, the first thing we have to do is we have to look back at our past that didn't end up so bad for us. And we have to say, man, God's grace was like really, really big there for me, but what I did was wrong. How I lived was wrong. The things I did were sinful. The way I treated people were wrong. Like we have to repent and look back and say the way I live my life, even though God you know, rescued me from it, 
It was wrong. Then we have to, number two, express regret over it. So repentance is admitting to God that it's wrong. Expressing regret is admitting to people that it was wrong. It's, it's having this kind of conversation with people. You know, when I look back at myself, I'm so thankful God forgave me. I'm so thankful that, you know, I learned the lessons that I learned. But I look back and I wish I wouldn't have done that. I hear people say all the time, you know, I look back at my past. I wouldn't change anything because I've learned so many lessons. I would change, now that I know Jesus, I would change every sin that I ever committed if I could. I regret living in rebellion to God. I'm thankful that God gave me second chances and 100th chances and 1,000th chances. I'm even thankful for the lessons that I learned, but I regret every time I did something God said don't to. So we've got to learn how to express regret that if I could go back, I wouldn't do that again, and I don't want you to do that. Third, we've got to learn to reflect on our story with our kids at the appropriate time. We've got to look at their life experience and we've got to add our life experience to their life experience. You say, where should I start sharing with my kids your age when you were their age? Say, wait a minute, what does that mean? If you've got a nine-year-old son, you should start sharing your story of what you were like at nine and how you began to know who God was. If you have a 15-year-old daughter, you should share who you were at 15. What you did that was good, what you did that was bad, what you want her to repeat, what you don't want her to repeat. I begin to reflect on my story with my kids. If you don't have kids, I would do this with a coworker. I would do this with a neighbor. Just begin to reflect on your story, but do it through the lens of Deuteronomy 6. Remember last week? Last week, God wanted to teach the people of Israel, hey, if, if, if you love me with your heart, Here's how your kids are going to love me with their heart. And he said, you need to tell your kids these things and do these things. And then he said, at some point, they're going to realize you've got a heart for God and they're going to ask you about it. Remember Deuteronomy 6.20? God said, in the future, when your son asks you what's the meaning of all this spiritual stuff you do, God said, you're going to tell him your story. Do you know that that question has become an official part of the Passover Haggadah? You say, what's the Passover Haggadah? It's the telling of the Passover story that happens at the Passover Seder. The Passover Seder is, is kind of a, a, a spiritual, it's kind of a spiritual dinner that Orthodox Jews have on the night before Passover where they live through, through a meal and through storytelling. They live from Egypt to Israel and they talk about how to go from spiritual bondage to spiritual promise. It's a script that you literally go by. You eat the same food, you drink the same thing, you ask the same questions, and you have discussions about your life. And one of the questions in the Passover Haggadah is Deuteronomy 6.20. Every year, think about this for those of you who are parents. Every year you pick one of your kids to read this line. Dad, tell me about why we follow God. Every year you pick one of your kids once a year to ask this question around a dinner table. Mom, tell me why we follow God. God said, every year I want your kids to ask you this question. Remind me again, why does our family love Jesus? Remind me again, why does our family go to church? Remind me again, Dad, what has God done in your life that this is important to us? Can you imagine once a year having that conversation to the point where your story becomes your kid's story? Dad, remind me. Why do we love Jesus again? Dad, remind me. Why do you give in the offering again? Dad, remind me. Why are we going on missions trip? Dad, remind me. Why do I have to go to youth camp? Dad, remind me. Why are you and mom greeters at church? Mom, remind me. Why do you serve in the nursery with our little sister? Help me understand your faith. That's what we're trying to teach our kids. And as you reflect on your story, number four, be sure to show your failures. 
Because I think the greatest thing that any parent can do for their child is share their failures. I had a businessman who's a mentor of mine who told me, Christian, the only advice I've ever gotten better than learn from your mistakes is learn from others' mistakes. Because then you get all the lessons without the pain. The only advice better than learn from your failure is learn from their failure. Because then you get all the advice with none of the pain. The greatest advice that we can give our children is here were my failures, learn from them. Which means, number five, that you'll begin to walk with a limp spiritually. This phrase comes from the life of Jacob. Remember him? We studied him in week one of the Family Strong series. Jacob was a man who for 20 years had spent so much time investing in his business that he'd become very wealthy. He'd become very successful. But after two decades, he realized he had this massive business, all this money, no relationship with his family, no peace with God. And he said, we've got we to change all this. We've got to get back to first things, being first. God and family got to come first. And in this journey back spiritually, in the time that he spent one night wrestling with God, it said that God touched the socket of his hip so that for the rest of his life he limped. And his limp became an inspiration to the people of Israel. It said the people of Israel were so aware of that limp that they never for the rest of time and to this day in Jerusalem, you can't find anyone to serve you anything out of the hip socket. They never eat anything from the hip socket because that's where Jacob wrestled with God and God taught him a lesson that was painful but lasting. And they want to remember that sometimes God teaches us painful things that change us for the better. So Jacob walked with a limp. So parents, when you begin to walk with a limp, your kids might learn your painful lessons instead of their own. And I believe this is the fact of life after serving with students for a decade and doing ministry with families for another decade. Your kids are going to learn more from your limp than from your strut. Dad, your kids don't care if you were an all-state quarterback in high school. They could care less. Moms, your kids do not care if you made homecoming court your sophomore year in high school. They could care less. They'll like looking at the pictures and laughing at you, even though their styles now looks a lot more like our styles in the late 80s and 90s than their styles in the early 2000s. They don't care about that stuff. As a matter of fact, if anything, it puts pressure on them to know that you were the valedictorian and the salutatorian and in the National Honor Society. Our kids don't learn from our strut. They learn from our limp. They learn humility. They learn that pain can change people. They learn that God stays after people. And if we learn to limp, we can teach our kids lessons. If we learn to limp, we can bring the unspoken to the surface. And if we learn to limp, instead of shoving and hiding, we can begin to surface and heal. So the question is, do we want to heal from our past and have hope from our future? Or do we want to keep hiding from our past and just shoving the conflict? I think all of us would say, I want to heal. I want my kids to heal, but how do I do that? I'm going to try to get you started on that path as we close today. Every week I've been giving you family strong moments in this series. The first one was to go pick three words for your family that kind of represented your heart spiritually. I still am getting email messages and Facebook messages about your family's three words. I love them. They inspire me. Thank you for sending them to me so that I can dream with your families. Last week, I talked to you about taking some moments, some morning moments and some dinnertime discussions and some bedtime blessings and some worry walks. I asked you to do all of those once. I did all of those once with almost every member of my family. It was awesome last week just spending good spiritual time with them. This week, I want to try to teach you how to, 
how instead of shoving and hiding, I want to teach you how to surface and heal. How do we bring issues of the heart to the surface for confrontation and conversation? Well, number one, I want to challenge you to share the story of your Christianity with your children this week if you're a Christian parent. Now, if you're not a parent, I want to challenge you to take somebody out at your work this week and say, hey, my pastor's kind of challenged us to share why we are the way we are. So I'd like to kind of tell you my story. At the end, you don't have to become a Christian. I just want you to know who I am and why I'm that way. But for parents, share your story. Say, where do I start? Start at the age of your kids. When I was your age, let me tell you where I went to church. Let me tell you what faith meant to me. Let me tell you what I wish I'd have known. Let me tell you why we're raising you this way instead of this way. Let me tell you about the mistakes I made, but how God used those and how I don't want you to repeat. Share your story with your kids. Next week, we're going to focus on moms and grandmas in a major way. It's going to be awesome. And it has to be because I literally have mothers tell me every year, I get one day a year, it's Mother's Day. On that day, you better be good. Like, do not have a bad sermon on Mother's Day. It's my day. It's my day. It better be good. So it'll be good. We're going to try to do really good for you on Mother's Day. But today, let me talk to dads. If you're a dad, I want you to go one step further in your family strong moment. If you're a dad who's not been baptized, I want to challenge you this year to get baptized on Father's Day to not just share your, stand, your story with your family, but to share your story with the world. I can't tell you how many spiritual lives I've watched be impacted and inspired when the faith of a child meets the faith of their father and they move together. And I cannot tell you how many spiritual lives I've watched stop dead in the tracks where the faith of a child meets the lack of faith in a father and it just kind of stalls. Dad, you can make a difference. You can make a difference in your family. You can make a difference in this church. Inside your bulletin's a little card that says Father's Day Baptism. Let me tell you what my goal is for Father's Day this year. My goal is that four dads in our church who have not been baptized yet will get baptized on Father's Day. I'm going to baptize dads in services for the first time ever on Father's Day so that dads, by sharing their spiritual limp, can inspire our congregation and their families. Dads, it's time to step up. Dads don't really lead spiritually in our world a whole lot anymore. You know, we have people sign up to get baptized all the time. You know who gets baptized the greatest percentage of the time? The kids. You know who gets baptized the second greatest percentage of the time? The moms. You know who continues to procrastinate and think about it later? The dads. Dads, it's time to tell our story. Dads, it's time to lead. Dads, it's time to step up and even share in the failure, say, this is who Jesus has made me and I'm glad for his grace in my life. I'm looking for one dad in this service who on Father's Day will say, I'm not just going to share my story with my kids. I'm going to share it with the world. I'm going to get baptized and let people know why I follow Jesus. I need one dad to step up and let this be your Father's Day legacy this year. And then finally, I need all of us to get comfortable leading through conflict. Every mom, every dad, every friend, every boss, every employee, I want us to learn to get comfortable leading through conflict. You know, it's the role, I believe, of Christians in our world to lead gently through conflict. I believe that's our role at every level of society. But if you're a parent, it's not just your role, it's your responsibility. Not to shove and hide, but to surface and heal the conflict that needs to be confronted in the lives of your kids. It's our job to bring the unspoken to the surface. It's our job to heal hearts so they can walk healthy into the future. It's our job, as Pastor Ryan said, to reveal, to heal. He gave me that phrase Wednesday after I preached this message to our staff. He said, we're looking for families that will reveal to heal, bring things out of the heart and into healing. So, okay, how do we do that? 
want to give you six questions that I've learned to use with my kids and my family that are kind of second level questions. They're actually on your sermon notes. I put them on your sermon notes and I put them on the app so that you could copy them off and have a copy. You need to have a copy of these questions in your car, sitting on your bedstand. You should have a copy of these questions in your office somewhere because these are second level questions that allow you to talk to hearts instead of minds. What are these questions that I try to talk with my family about that allow me to hear from the heart? Is everything okay in your heart? Are you mad at anyone? Did anyone hurt your feelings? Did anybody break a promise? Is there anything you need to tell me? Are you worried about anything? If you ask those questions with time to answer, you'll be amazed at what surfaces from the heart that just needs a parent's touch, that needs a little bit of healing. If you start one of your worry walks with these questions, you'll probably end with the answer and talk about it the entire time. If you use these questions for a morning moment, you'll help the heart be healthy before you start the day. If you have these questions during a bedtime blessing, I think kids will go to bed with a little more peace in their heart. So let me ask you today, do you come from a family And will you leave a legacy as a family where when conflict comes, you shove and hide it? Or will you leave a legacy of a family that when conflict comes, we let it surface, we let it heal however long that takes, and we have a strong family with strong hearts because we've learned, unlike David, to deal with the hard things. We pray with me as we consider those questions together today.